following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Our regular pastor is in the U.S. visiting some churches and spending time with family, so I'm the irregular pastor. One of the elders. How many of you are taking Thai right now? Are you studying Thai? Okay. Let me give you a warning. Stay in Thai until you figure out how to tell the barber what you want. Okay? I'm, I'm just saying. Just, just saying. We're going through the book of Galatians. And today we're at Galatians 5, 19 to 26 looking at the works of the flesh and the works of the or the fruit of the spirit one of the commentators that i read said that uh, the works of the flesh um, paul gives about 15 of them here and the commentator said he was grateful that it was just a partial list uh, pliny assembled a list of 144 so we would be here for a while and the commentator was grateful that he didn't have to go through all 144 of them We'll be going through them very quickly. When let's read the passage first in Galatians five nineteen to twenty six. Now the works of the flesh are evident: sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. When we talk about the works of the flesh, we need to keep in mind what Paul has in mind. He's not here talking about a dualism between our body, our material part, and our spirit, our immaterial part. He's not talking about dualism. That doesn't even enter into his mind. What he's talking about are two realms of power. The power that comes from the flesh, our own human abilities. Whether it's in the body or in our spirit, it doesn't matter. It's the, the realm of our fleshly um, nature or our, um, our, our, what we've inherited from Adam. And on the other side are the, the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the power of God. And he's contrasting these two realms of power, if you will, and what it is that those two realms produce. As Ted pointed out last week, the flesh is the human propensity to sin. It's Adam's gift to all of us. It's not a very nice gift, but we've all received it from Adam. And we're very good at it. Very good at sinning, unfortunately. For Paul, the flesh is a pejorative word. It's not something that comes to us from God. 
Be careful that you don't think that somehow our physical bodies are what is sinful. Because God made Adam and Eve in the garden with physical bodies and everything that God created was good. So it's not just the flesh as we think about our, our physical bodies. It's something else. It is that, that gift that we have received from Adam. It's kind of like if you were to go to a, a, a quarantine location and you went to this place, maybe it's Ebola, maybe it's uh, a long time ago, a leper colony, a TB ward, something like that. And it's quarantine. Everybody there is sick. And if you go there and you observe, especially as a medical person, you look at them, you would notice that they're all exhibiting the same symptoms because they all have the same sickness. But just because everybody there is sick in the same way doesn't mean that they're normal or that that's the natural state of human beings. And so it's the same way with the the sin uh, nature or the, the flesh that we have inherited from Adam we all are fighting with that. We all have been given that. If you're descended from Adam, it comes with the package. But that doesn't make it normal. It doesn't make it natural. It's not the way God created us in the first place. And it's something that Jesus Christ has come to conquer and to give us the ability to crucify. In fact, if you look at 24 in this passage, Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So as Christians, we have, as human beings, we have inherited this propensity to sin, this self-centeredness from Adam. But as Christians, we have been regenerated. We have been brought from the death of sin into life in Jesus Christ and just as Jesus Christ was crucified and died, our sinfulness, our flesh, if you will, this self-centeredness has been crucified in Jesus Christ. That means it's dead. So then the question is, then why do Christians sin? Well, it's because we are able to resurrect what's been killed in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul talks about constantly disciplining himself and bringing his body or the flesh into subjection. And so, in Jesus Christ, we have the power to say, you are dead. Old man, sinful nature, what I have inherited from Adam, my self-centeredness, all of that, I can declare that in Jesus Christ it is dead and it has no more power over me. The lost don't have that power. We'll look at their works of the flesh in a little bit. But as believers, by the power of the Spirit of God living in us, that sinful nature has been crucified and no longer can rise up and say, you will do what I say. Now, we can do what it says, but in so doing, we are going against the Spirit of God and we are following instead what we've inherited from Adam. The Galatians were being tempted to add something. They were being tempted to pursue righteousness in the power of the flesh. And Paul has been going through this, uh, through the whole book of Galatians, telling them why that's a bad idea. And so what the Judaizers are proposing to them is that instead of living in the Spirit, you need to do works of the flesh. 
You need to perform these rites. You need to pursue circumcision. You need to follow the dietary law of Moses. And those are the things that will make you righteous. Now, they're adding that to Jesus Christ. And we've already commented earlier in the book that you can't do that. That's not an option. And so as they begin to pursue righteousness through the power of their flesh, they're actually going to be doing the works of the flesh. And this is Paul's warning to them. In fact, if you look at Galatians 5, we back up a little bit, you can see where Paul is concerned about the community. Look at Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers, this freedom that comes from being able to say no to the works of the flesh. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. He warns them that if they decide to abandon God's grace, they will end up devouring each other. If the Galatians decide to pursue the Mosaic law, ironically, they're going to end up producing the works of the flesh instead of the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we often read these lists as the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, and we go down through and we say, okay, for my personal life, these are the things that I don't do. Okay, This is my do-not-do list, the works of the flesh. And as we've already mentioned, there's 144 of them that Pliny put together, so it's a long list. Okay, So you look at this as an individual and you say, I'm not going to do those things, and the fruit of the Spirit, these are the things I want to do in my life. Which is fine, there's nothing wrong with that. But in Paul's letter, he is addressing the Galatian church as a community, as the body of Christ. And what he's really focusing on, as we've seen here in Galatians 5, he's worried about the community devouring itself. And we'll look at how that plays out in a little bit. But for Paul, the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit are not just an individual to-do list or not-to-do list. It is how the community of Jesus Christ is to be characterized by the fruit of the flesh. I mean, by the fruit of the Spirit. So, as we look at these, I want you to think about what are the implications for not doing these and pursuing these, the, the virtues, in the context of the spirit or of the body of Christ, in the context of community. Paul is concerned that if they begin to pursue the Mosaic law, Righteousness by works, by the power of the flesh, what's actually going to happen is not that they're going to become righteous, but that they're going to tear each other apart. Now, let's look at some of these works of the flesh. It's not too surprising that Paul uses this word works. Um, for Paul, unless he categorizes it as good works or the works of God, there's always a bad word for Paul, works. Is always a bad word. It's, it's a way of, of pursuing righteousness through the power of the flesh. And it's not possible. Ironically, as we read through this list, <clears throat> as we go through the list, a lot of these things are um, what the world would describe as freedom. Sexual immorality. Love the one you're with. Um, any kind of sexual perversion is fine. It's actually freedom. I'm liberated. I can do whatever I want. God's laws don't apply to me. I'm my own God. I am absolutely free to do whatever I want. 
And if we go through, I didn't take the time to do it, but if we go through the works of the flesh, I could probably come up with another word that makes it sound nice or powerful or the way to get ahead. This is how the world describes the works of the flesh, as positive things. But as we pursue the works of the flesh, what actually ends up happening is we become more and more and more in bondage. And James tells us that the the end of that, the end of pursuing those desires is not freedom, but death. And so what we get shouted at us on a regular basis as the way to get ahead and, and the way to be free is just lies. And here we see them described for what they are. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Evident. Why does Paul say that? What he means by that is they're obvious. I really don't need to give you a big long list. You are already very familiar with the works of the flesh. How? One, by our own hearts, by our own practices. We're very familiar with them. And also, as we look at the world around us, these are very obvious. And he just gives us a very depressing sample of those things. And the first three he gives are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. The focus of all three of these is on sexual promiscuity, perversion. Sexual activity is something that has been ordained by God to take place in the marriage relationship. It is a very powerful part of our physical bodies, but also of our our mental activities. And is to be restricted, because of the grace of God, to a very intimate and um, one relationship, marriage. If it's practiced outside of that, Its power becomes very destructive. And God knows that. The world knows that as well. They want to activate or they want to to access that power outside of a marriage relationship. And it becomes instead destructive. Now, if you're thinking that the works of the flesh have to do just with the body, then you might be tempted to think that these three are are the works of the flesh, obviously. It's what we do with our body. But Jesus told us that sexual promiscuity happens first in the mind. It's not just your body. As he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman to lust after her, you're committing adultery already with her in your heart. It is something that happens in our minds first. It's really um, only later that we act it out with our bodies. So just avoiding physical sexual promiscuity is not perfection. That's what Jesus was telling the Pharisees. You think you can be righteous by the law? Let me expand the law to help you understand what it really means. If this is an area of temptation for you, I'd encourage you to do something that is very powerful. By yourself, Somewhere, give yourself a good half hour. And at the top of the page, you write something like, if I do, fill in the blank. And you can do this with any sin. Whatever the sin is that really is a threat to you. Whatever the temptation is that comes to you on a regular basis, put that at the top. If I pursue and I practice this sin, what are some of the consequences of that sin? Satan loves to help us reduce the consequences of sin and expand the benefits 
So take some time to turn the tables and expand the consequences. Think, if I practice sexual promiscuity, these are the people that are going to be affected. These are the people that are going to be hurt. And you think about your immediate family, your spouse, your family, your children's children, the body of Christ that you're a part of now, your supporters, the people that you're serving here in Asia. All of these people are affected. And we like to say, you know, it's just between two consenting adults. Nobody needs to get hurt. That's a lie. That's a lie. It affects hundreds and hundreds of people. In fact, if you just take 30 seconds, I'm sure each one of us can come up with somebody who has fallen into sexual immorality and think about the consequences of that and how it's played out over the decades. It affects community. It affects the body of Christ. In fact, that was one of the things that Paul was focusing on when he was writing to the church at Corinth. That you need to get rid of this sexual immorality from the body of Christ. Sexual immorality destroys community. Verse 20, again, idolatry and sorcery. Now, these might not seem like the kinds of, of sins that we really need to be watching out for, the works of the flesh. But here in Asia especially, idolatry is alive and well. In its most um, basic form. And the idea that you can, through some physical object, manipulate the spiritual forces, which is really what sorcery is also. It's an attempt through either drugs, through um, hallucination, through um, some kind of uh, induced state, trying to access spiritual power. People are raised from a very young age. You, you can see them here in Thailand. Small children with the joysticks coming before the images to bow down, to, to pray, um, or have the monks pray over them. It, they're very, very young. They're, they're taught that this is what mommy and daddy believe and this is what you believe. This is how you get blessed in the world. You have to manipulate and please these powers. And as people come to Christ out of that context, it takes a long time sometimes through discipleship, through sanctification, through their um, progressive sanctification, learning that the true power is the Spirit, the Spirit of God. And so this is really, at, at its core, the idea of what is the source of your spiritual power. Is it something in the world that you're trying to manipulate, an idol, or through sorcery, or is it the power of the Spirit of God? A work of the flesh is trying to access this power outside of God. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 10.20, Paul says that if you're worshiping an idol, you're actually worshiping demons. Verses 20 to 21. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. No amens or hallelujahs on those. Of course not. But think about it. Think about it. In terms of community, in terms of the Galatian church, in terms of CCF, if we have these works of the flesh present among us, how helpful is that going to be for the body of Christ? What kind of a testimony is that to the world? All of these kinds of things are the things that, that tear apart and destroy community. 
And in fact, Paul has felt this himself. Look at Galatians 4, starting in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. When I came to you, you did me no wrong. You knew it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despised me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, back then, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. If it would have helped me, you would have done that. But now... Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Here Paul is beginning to feel personally the change that has come over the Galatians. As they have begun to pursue righteousness through the works of the flesh, through pursuing the Mosaic law, they're now looking down their noses at Paul. They're saying, Paul, you're telling us lies. You're our enemy. And so very quickly, Paul has noticed in his interaction with the Galatians that the works of the flesh have begun to sour the relationship that he had with the Galatian church. Related to this list, enmity, strife, jealousy, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. How much does it matter to you who gets the credit? How much praise and thanksgiving do you require in order to serve the body of Christ? How do you feel when somebody is praising someone else to you? What pops into your mind? Hallelujah, praise God? Or, well, I can do that. Well, I've done that. Well, actually, I'm better than they are. Well, do you know what issues they have at home? Are these the things that pop into your mind? Do you want to push people down so that you can climb up? That's the works of the flesh. I personally have to be very careful with this. I'm a professor. I I teach for a, a school here in Chiang Mai. We have about 30 adjunct professors that fly in and teach for us. There are four or five of us at the office that live here in Chiang Mai. And out of those 35 people, there's a couple, maybe more, who are better gifted than I am. And when I hear the students talk about how transforming that class was in my life, but they don't mention any of my classes, I'm like, oh... Jealousy, envy, dissensions. Do you praise God for the way He works through other people's ministries? Or do you just throw out those little comments that might cast a little doubt on that person's ministry? The works of the flesh are very insidious, they're very evident. In our lives. Verse 21. 
drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Here Paul wraps it up with a bang. He's talking about drunkenness as what is it that causes you to lose control of your physical body, but also what is it that causes you to lose good judgment? Don't allow drunkenness to, to steal your ability to make good decisions. Because what happens ultimately is you slide into orgies. And you think, well, I'm never going to go that far. Well, I pray not. I pray not. There's a, a, a decreasing amount. I, I come from America, and there's a decreasing amount of teetotaling in America. The churches have decided that teetotaling is not required by the Bible, and more and more Christians are partaking of alcohol. Now, I'm not going to be one who says you should be a teetotaler. However, the Bible does warn very strongly against drunkenness. And be very careful, because it doesn't take very long to go from a drink to a drunk. And the problem with alcohol is it does inhibit your ability to make good choices. And so the more you take, the more you're inclined to take more. And if you're somebody who is inclined to become addicted or to rely on something else to help you, besides the Spirit of God, then I would warn you, be very careful. Be very careful. Verse 21, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, some of your translations will say those who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's actually a good translation. There's another place in Romans where Paul uses the exact same word, and there the ESV translates it as practice both times. It's a good way to translate it. In fact, the tense of the verb is the idea of something that's ongoing. But don't be so quick to jump to, oh, it's not just if you do these things, it's if you practice them that you might not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, let me ask you, how do you know when you've transitioned from do it to practicing it. Who wants to play on that line? I don't want to play on that line. Yes, there's grace and there's forgiveness. And if you resurrect the flesh and you commit these sins, there is grace and mercy and you need to repent, forsake, and turn from it. But don't Give yourself false assurance by thinking, well, if I can do it a whole bunch as long as it's every six months. As long as I put a gap in between. So how do we accomplish the task of fostering a community in which the works of the flesh are not even named among us? How do we rid ourselves of sexual immorality, envy, jealousy, dissension? How do we get or evidence the fruit of the Spirit, that nice list of virtues. We can't. We can't do it. The whole point of what Paul is saying is that the works of the flesh, what you can do on your own, in your own strength, is this nasty list. But the fruit of the Spirit, that's produced by the Spirit of God in us. As we crucify the flesh and as we yield ourselves as servants of Jesus Christ and as we rely on the power of the Spirit of God, God Himself will produce this fruit or this harvest in us. One 
might seem like a minor detail, but he says works, plural, of the flesh. And he says fruit, singular, of the spirit. Not fruits, but fruit. There are gifts, plural, of the spirit, but that's not the same thing. Those are special abilities that God gives to us to enable us to accomplish the work of Jesus Christ in the world. And there's several of them. And most of us, in fact, Paul says none of us, have all of the gifts of the Spirit. There's one or two, and we find a place where we can use those. We find out in the church what's needed, and we exercise those gifts. But the fruit of the Spirit is a package. It's the whole thing. God is producing His character in us by the power of the Spirit of God. And that character is described by all of these words. And there's more you could add. Paul uses the etc. phrase at the end of this list as well. But as the Spirit of God is producing His character in us, we can't say something like, well, you know, peace is not really my thing. I'm more into joy. Or, you know, I'm not really all that good at patience, but I'm good at love. No, no, no. You don't get to pick. All of these things should characterize your life. As the Spirit of God is working in your life, He will produce in you the whole character of God. And one more thing to keep in mind. As these things are being produced and evident in your life, be careful that you don't touch the glory. That you don't reach up and polish your halo for everybody. You know, you're a jerk. But I'm actually nice to you, and I should get credit for that. Why? Why should you not take credit for that? Because it is God. It is the Spirit of God who is producing it in you. And the only way that you are not evidencing the works of the flesh is because the power of the Spirit of God is working in you to make you the nice person that you are. The loving, joyful, peaceful, patient person that you are is only possible because of the Spirit of God. Make sure that the glory goes where it belongs. Verses 22 to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Love, the very first one. At the top of the list, Paul's already spent time in 1 Corinthians 13 to describe this characteristic to us. It is the nature of God. God is love. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, evidencing the works of the flesh to the hilt, Christ died for us. He didn't wait until we were good enough. He died for us when we were in our worst state. God Himself is love. 1 John 4.8 Anyone who does not know God, or anyone who does not love, does not know God because God is love. Jesus said one of the greatest laws is to love your neighbor as yourself. The lawyer who was asking Jesus what's the greatest law wanted to justify himself. And so he said, who's my neighbor? Now, the Bible says I have to love my neighbor as myself. Well, let's define who my neighbor is. Let's limit the responsibility and just 
okay, you are my neighbor. I have to love you as I love myself, but you are not, so I don't have to. And Jesus says, you got it all wrong. It's not about limiting your obligation. It's about expanding your obligation. And he asks not in the parable, who is the neighbor, but who was acting like a neighbor? Who was loving? And the lawyer had to admit very grudgingly, I'm sure, that it was the Samaritan because he would rather spit than say Samaritan. This is the kind of love that we are enabled to exhibit by the Spirit. Jesus told us that we others will know that we are his followers by our love. John 13:35. Jesus himself loved Mark 10:21. And Jesus looking at him, the rich man, loved him and said to him, "Ah, you're good enough. You've kept all the commandments, you're fine." No, that's not what he said. He loved him and then went on to put his finger on the very thing that the rich man could not do. That was a loving thing to do. To point out where he was coming short. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Jesus said to his disciples, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Wow. That's the extent of Jesus' love. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And finally, Romans 8.38, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. This is the kind of love that we are called and we are empowered by the Spirit of God to show to the people here in this community. It's a high standard, but we don't have to do it on our own. We do it by the power of of the Spirit of God. Joy. This joy comes from knowing the grace of God. Envy, jealousy, divisions, no, no grace. They don't know grace. And these preclude joy. God is a joyous God. He delights in our joy. You realize that even the tithe that was prescribed for the Israelites to bring, sometimes that tithe was to be used to have a party. For the family. It's a great passage in Deuteronomy. It says if you're, you have you bring the tithe, but if it's if it's too heavy or if you have to have too far to come, turn it into money. Come to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and buy whatever your heart desires. And if you're a teetotaler, don't read that passage because it's a little awkward. He says, go out and buy whatever kind of meat you want, whatever kind of drink you want. Have a party in my presence because I love joy. A feast is not just a, a, a stoic celebration. It's a party. You get to kill the fatted calf and you have a party with your family. Jesus Christ's first miracle was at the wedding. The luscious at the party had already drank all the wine there was. It was all gone. And Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they're out of wine. Jesus says, tough, they should have planned better. No. He says, fill these pots. And they fill them to the brim. That's one of my favorite lines. Like one of the few places where people do exactly what Jesus said. 
Fill them up. Okay, fill them all the way up to the very tippy top. Now take it to the MC. You realize if you do the math, Jesus made enough wine after they'd already drank everything there was for everybody to have six to ten more glasses of wine. God is a joyous God and he's a hilarious giver. He loves people who give joyfully. Why? Because that's the kind of giver that God is. God causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. My house was surrounded by rice paddies. The farmers go out there and they offer the joysticks to the, to the gods in their fields. They're trying to placate the spirits. They completely ignore the true God. And yet, the rain falls on their field too. You know, if I were God, I'd be like, okay, just for you. Just a little shower right here. You did not ask. You didn't even thank me. No, no rain for you. No, God is a joyous, abundant, generous God. And this is what should this should be what characterizes our community. Jesus wants our joy to be full. John fifteen eleven to twelve. Peace. Our community should be a place of peace. If you think about envy, enmity, strife, jealousy, these are the enemies of peace. Look at 1 Timothy 6. First Timothy 6, 6 to 11. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Lack of contentment is an enemy of peace. Verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. Perspective on things. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Here's another list of virtues, and Paul is putting it in the context of contentment. Contentment. A lack of contentment will destroy peace. 1 Corinthians 14.33 tells us that God is a God of peace and our meetings should be peaceful because of that. That was one of the things that he rebuked the Corinthians for. Patience. Patience is trusting God's timetable, even though we don't know 99% of it. And based on Job, even if God did tell us, we wouldn't understand. Do you trust God enough to be patient? Anxiety and lack of patience is practical atheism. You're saying, I don't like your plans, or I don't believe in them. This is not working out for me. Do you trust God? How do you like it when people make plans but don't consult you? That's what we do all the time. We make our plans and we forget 
that God might have something else in mind? Are you willing to submit to His plans? How patient are you? And when I first got here, uh, I met a missionary who'd been here for 20 years. And I was maybe somebody in this room, I don't remember who it was, a very wise person. And I was, I'd only been here for about a year, and I was getting very frustrated because I would call a worker to come out to my house to do something, you know, fix the toilet or, or you know, install something in the shower, I don't know. And they never seemed to come on time. And, and I would waste hours waiting for them to show up, and then about 4 o'clock I'd get a call saying, oh, I got tied up to the other place, I won't be able to come until tomorrow. <laughs> oh... Patience was not being worked out in my life. And so this missionary told me, you know, I figured out if I just readjust my plans and figure that it's going to take twice as long as I think, then I can chill out a little bit. I said, well, okay, that's kind of cool. How long did it take you to learn that? Oh, about 20 years. Patience. Patience. The other idea of patience is long-suffering very interesting juxtaposition in John 16:33. Jesus says, "I have said these things to you, my teachings, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world." Here Jesus is acknowledging, "Yeah, life's going to be tough. Yeah, you're going to have tribulations, but I have taught you these things so that you can have peace." He doesn't remove the tribulations. He gives us peace in that we know that He is in control. He has overcome the world. And even though things might not be working out right now, eventually they will. Do you believe that? That's the source of our patience. But we have to be careful that we don't mistake patience for apathy. Or a cool heart, Jayen, where you act like everything is fine. But inside you want to rip someone's face off. Hey, that's not patience. That's a counterfeit. That is a work of the flesh. That's a dissension. That is envy. That is jealousy that's boiling underneath. Spirit-produced patience involves forgiveness, humility, and love. First Peter encourages us to suffer even in the face of injustice. Jesus was patient while he was on the earth. He was long-suffering. He suffered many things. He had to put up with his parents. Now, how many of you parents get the eye roll from your kids? Or the sigh? The idea that mom and dad have no idea. Not that again! And sometimes our kids are right because we're wrong. Now just think about it. You're Mary and Joseph. Jesus is never wrong. Imagine the patience of Jesus in dealing with his parents. You hear just a little bit. He's 12 years old. He's at the temple. And they come up. And they say, Jesus, what are you doing? We've been looking all over for you. <gasps> I don't know. Maybe Jesus didn't do an eye roll. Is that a sin? Patient. And how many times does he say to his disciples, have I been with you this long and you still don't get it? Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father and it's enough. Jesus says, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't understand that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
Sometimes we look at the cleansing of the temple and we say, whoa, Jesus kind of lost his patience there that day, didn't he? Think about it. How many times did Jesus cleanse the temple? One, maybe two. There's some debate, but it's no more than two. How many times did Jesus go to the temple? A lot. We don't even know how many times Jesus went to the temple. Only twice, at the most, did he kick them out. He says, my house, my father's house is to be a house of prayer. And you've made it a den of thieves. And every time he walks into the temple, except for those two times, he lets it go. That's patience. That's trusting God's plan. Kindness, gentleness. Working for your salvation makes you amazingly interested in keeping track of the points. This often precludes kindness. Because if you think you have to be nice to people in order to gain points, then you're not really being nice, are you? I'm just being nice so that I get points. And it would also be nice if you would recognize it along the way, too. You know, oh, you're so nice. Oh, thank you. That's why I did it. Kindness. Kindness. Genuine kindness is based on the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Ephesians 4, 31 to 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander. See, these are words that we haven't even dealt with today. Be put away from you along with all malice. Instead of the works of the flesh, here's the fruit of the Spirit. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Why? Because God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. It's a lot easier to be kind if you realize that you're just as nasty and unlovable as that person is. But because of the work of Jesus Christ in your life that God has done on your behalf, you're able to be kind. But it's only because of the work of God in your life. Jesus demonstrated kindness by touching lepers, receiving infants and children, people that nobody gave any credit to going to Zacchaeus' house. You ever picture what's going on in Zacchaeus' life? He's a tax collector, chief tax collector. Not a very nice Jew, as far as the other Jews are concerned. If he's walking through a crowd, somebody's sure to stick out their foot and trip him. They're throwing rocks at the back of his head. Okay? Not a nice guy. And he's short on top of that. Okay? I'm 5'6". And I, I, I feel the shortness. I, it's an advantage coming to Asia because I'm actually, you know, statistically, I'm a little bit more average. Want to go back to America? Oh, gee whiz. And we have a lot of supporting churches in Michigan. They grow them big in Michigan. The Dutch, I don't know if there's any Dutch in here, but they're all tall. So I understand Zacchaeus. You know, he's kind of short. In fact, he's so short, he can't see out of the crowd. So he's like jumping up and down. And everybody's like laughing at him. He goes running ahead on his short little legs. He goes running ahead and he climbs a tree. Here is this rich, supposed to be a respectable man climbing a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus stops and says, 
in his kindness, his Zacchaeus comes out. I'm going to your house today. Jesus is kind. Goodness. Somebody comes running up to Jesus and says, Good master! And Jesus says, No one is good but God. No one is good but God. So it is only the Spirit of God who can produce goodness in us. We can't do it by our own power. We can't do it by the flesh. We've already looked at what happens when we try to do stuff by the flesh. The works of the flesh are anything but good. Before God, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. God's goodness is wholesomeness with no falsity or hypocrisy. You know, if we are genuinely good by the power of the Spirit of God, we will be falsely accused. Jesus was falsely accused. Joseph was falsely accused. Daniel was falsely accused. They set Daniel up. The world does not like good people. It shows to them that their deeds are evil. And so when they falsely accuse you, it's because the Spirit of God is working out His goodness in your life. But patience says, I'm going to bear it. I'm going to be long-suffering. Interesting juxtaposition here in Luke and then in John. Luke 6.45 The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And then John 7.46 They come back reporting about Jesus. No one ever spoke like this man. Now we usually take that from John to say you know he was a talented debater. But I think there's more than that going on here. Is that everything that came out of Jesus' mouth was good. You couldn't refute it. They had to hire false witnesses to try to get Jesus convicted of some crime and even they couldn't do it. Because everything that came out of His mouth was good. Faithfulness, dependability, consistency, stableness, Faithfulness flows out of our understanding of God's character and what is pleasing to Him. Think about the implications of faithfulness within the community. How marvelous it is to have faithful people who do what they say they will do. Jesus did all that the Father had given Him to do. Even at the very end, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God is faithful. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. If we are faithless, 2 Timothy 2, He remains faithful. Meekness and gentleness. Meekness is the refusal to demand your own rights and to trust God to see and to reward you later. Meekness does not demand our rights. True meekness sees ourselves as God does. It's not self-hatred, but self-respect as a child of God. But we do not demand any recognition. It is the opposite of seeking places of honor. It's washing the feet of others.
self-control. In stark contrast to the last two works of the flesh, drunkenness and orgies, God's Spirit produces in us temperance, control of our actions and our thoughts. In fact, if you go back through the works of the flesh, many of those are the result of a lack of self-control or temperance. Proverbs 16.32 says that anybody who is able to control his spirit is stronger than someone who can take a city. And you have to realize that cities, in the context of siege warfare, were surrounded by stone walls. That was the defensive method back then. And if you're able to control yourself, you're like a walled city. But if you don't control yourself, you don't have self-control, then you're like a city whose walls are broken down. Paul wraps up in verse 23, against such things. In other words, this is not an exhaustive list of virtues, but against such things, there is no law. Now, that doesn't mean you go out and you check the Thai code and see if they have outlawed love. That's not what he's talking about. In the context, Paul is talking about love. I mean, the law is the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law doesn't address these. Why? Because if you do these things, you're keeping the law. If you want to be righteous by keeping the law, this is what it looks like. Not circumcision, not dietary code, but these kinds of character changes that are only able to be produced in you by the Spirit of God. Look at Romans 8.4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Walking in step with the Spirit will enable you to fulfill the law. Verse 24, we've already looked at that. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Again, in Romans 8, 13 to 14, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If or since we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Living in the Spirit is automatic. Keeping in step with the Spirit is something a little bit different. It's the idea of marching in cadence or marching in sequence with the Spirit. And it's even more powerfully seen in the context of the community where all of us are walking in step, in sync with the Holy Spirit. That the character of God is being worked out in all of our lives so that we can see love, joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control in all the people in the body of Christ. And as we're walking in step with the Spirit, these things will be worked out in our lives and our community will not be characterized by what he says in verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, or envying one another. Conceit is the result of idle or vain boasting, as if we had anything to do with our salvation. Salvation is through faith by grace, lest anyone should boast. All the glory belongs to God. If you're trying to outdo each other with external works of the law, then irritating and provoking one another is going to happen. Why are you eating pork? You should be circumcised. Or being envious. Why do you get to have barbecued spare ribs, but I don't? 
If you're concerned about getting credit, if you're concerned about what the other person is doing, then the works of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit is not going to be blossoming in your life. The power of the Spirit of God can make us beautiful people to the glory of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ, the works of the flesh have been crucified. We can and must say no. And we also know that because of the presence, the indwelling presence of your powerful spirit, we can see these fruit in our lives. We can see this character produced in us. And we pray for that for both this community and each one of us as individuals. In Jesus' name. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.